Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're continuing to look at the Apostle Paul's instructions to the disorderly church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And last time we began this section of text by asking a question that seems to be present in the minds of the believers squabbling in Corinth. The question was this, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it look like for someone to be really spiritual, to be led by the Spirit of God? And to begin to answer that question, we spent a good deal of time looking at Paul's instructions and specifically noting the context out of which these Christians had been saved. Most of them were coming out of the dominant religion of the area, which we noted was a very mystical religion. It was characterized by sensual activity, by ecstatic behavior, even bizarre performances all done under the guise of spiritual religion. If it felt right, it must be true. If it was unusual, it must have been produced by the divine. And if it was impressive, then it must have been authentic. That was the formula that these people were raised with in judging true spirituality. And you better believe that such a calculus was coming with them when they came into the Christian church. And so to combat this, we notice that Paul gives two parameters in verse 3 to show us what true spirituality does not look like. Number one, somebody won't be led by the Holy Spirit to say that Jesus is accursed that he's currently consigned, condemned to hell, that he is anathema. Now, Paul's not saying that Jesus did not become a curse for us, which is taught in Galatians 3 and in Peter's letters. Jesus did become a curse for us, which means he bore the curse of the law in the place of sinners. But he didn't stay that way. He was resurrected. He was brought back to life, thus demonstrating that God had vindicated his life and accepted the sacrifice that he had made on behalf of his people. And so what Paul is saying here is is that however impressive the gift may seem, whatever wonderful prophetic oracle the, the teaching may have, if it is truly produced by the Holy Spirit, it will not lead someone into heresy to say that Jesus is accursed It will not undermine the person and work of Jesus. But the other parameter that Paul gives us is in verse 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That is, nobody will confess the truth of God with their lips and their lives without the Holy Spirit's work. We know from other passages that people may do wonderful things in the name of God. And even Jesus himself warns that people will come to him on the last day. And they'll proclaim what wonderful prophecy they had done and what mighty works they had done in his name, but the truth of Jesus' lordship was far from their hearts. So Jesus says he will cast them into outer darkness. In other words, it is possible to have gifting, even awe-inspiring, dumbfounding gifting, without grace. It's possible to have supernatural gifting without saving grace, and thus gifting alone without true reverence of heart is no sure marker that a person is spiritual, that they are truly led by the Holy Spirit. And that gets us to our text tonight, which will begin in verse 4. Let's begin by reading verses 4 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 12, though we won't make it through all, all the way through verse 11. This is God's word for us. 
Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the Spirit of the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as He wills. This is God's Word for us this evening. Let's pray. Father, we ask that Your Spirit would be among us and would move, would peel back the blinders of sin that are over our eyes. He would soften the hardness in our hearts that He would help us to behold the Christ of Scriptures. To see that He is the one who gifts His church by the presence of the Spirit. Supernatural gifts. Help us to use them wisely and to love You and honor You with them. In Christ's name, Amen. Tonight I have seven observations for us to see from this section of text. text. Seven observations about what Paul is teaching the church in Corinth. And I'll also note a danger that can come with each of those observations. Now, many of them will overlap a little bit. They are closely related, so don't worry if it sounds like I might be repeating myself a little bit. We're kind of summiting a mountain, and so you're going to get the same vista from a slightly different altitude as we go up the mountain. That's my intention. It's not early senility setting in. First observation. Notice how in verses 4, 5, and 6 that Paul assumes the full divinity of the Holy Spirit. The full deity of the Holy Spirit of God is assumed in Paul's argumentation. Look again at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God. I preached a whole sermon on the person and work of the Holy Spirit back in chapter 3, so I won't repeat all of that tonight. But it is worth noticing that Paul assumed that the Holy Spirit is fully God just as much as Jesus and the Father. Spirit, Lord, God are used by Paul in a successive way that assumes no distinction between them, either in essence or in will. And we know from passages like John 14 and 16 that the Holy Spirit would be sent by the Father and the Son and that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to reveal Jesus Christ. He guides into all truth and that truth centers upon the person and work of the Son. And as it relates to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, each gift by the Holy Spirit reveals to us a little bit of Jesus' own character. Have you ever thought about that before? How do the spiritual gifts relate to the person of Jesus Christ and His own character? Jesus was the only perfectly gifted person to ever live. He was the perfect teacher the perfect prophet, the perfect administrator. He was perfectly compassionate and merciful, perfectly hospitable. Each of the spiritual gifts is perfectly manifested in the person of Jesus. So if we know that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to reveal more of Jesus, 
One way that the Spirit accomplishes that mission is to reveal a bit of the character of the Son through the various gifts that He gives to His body. And therein lies a danger for us. We can be like the Corinthians. We can be so wrapped up in the pursuit of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we neglect the giver. We could be so consumed with the Spirit's gifting that we miss the point, which is to see more of Jesus. It can happen with any of the gifts, too. We could be so consumed with teaching that we forget the point of why we, we teach, and that's to see Jesus. We could be so consumed with showing mercy and caring for the physical needs of those who are suffering that we miss the point of showing mercy, which is to point others to Jesus. It was happening in Corinth where people were trumpeting their gifts of prophecy and of tongues while neglecting the object of their prophecy, which is the glory of the Son of God. So yes, let's recognize how the Spirit has gifted us and let's leverage those gifts for kingdom service, but let us not neglect and cherish the point of all the gifts, which is to proclaim and exalt the Son of God who died in the place of sinners like me and you. Second, We've seen the deity of the Holy Spirit assumed in Paul's argument. Now notice in verse 4, from where do these gifts come? From where do these gifts come? Verse 4, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. You might think I'm pointing out the obvious, that spiritual gifts come from the Spirit, but sometimes the most obvious truths are the most overlooked. It's the Holy Spirit of God who grants to believers the giftings that they have. He is the source, the fountain, their origin. Or to say it another way, the spiritual gifts that we have are not natural. You're not born that way, at least not the first time. The gifts of the Spirit and the desire that we have to use them for the good of the body of Christ are not the result of good genetics. You don't get good spiritual gifts by going to a good Christian school. You don't get good spiritual gifts by sitting under the right kind of preaching or teaching, by confessing the right confession of faith. You get spiritual gifts from the Spirit of God. He is the author of them in your soul. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means, for one, that each gift is equal in dignity. There are no insignificant spiritual gifts. Paul explains that later in chapter 12. We'll get to that. The Spirit of God, the same Spirit who is present brooding over the waters at creation, who is co-equal in power and wisdom and goodness with the Father and the Son, has given the privilege of gifts to every single believer who has ever come to faith. And as such, there are no insignificant gifts to think so is to proclaim that some work of the Holy Spirit is inferior, is deficient, which is a shameful thought. But herein lies a danger for us. Sometimes we fall into a ditch on either side of the road. We can become arrogant about our gifts, as seen in some of the Corinthians who elevated prophecy and tongues over all the others. Or we can run into the other ditch, which is thinking that we haven't really been given the good gifts. We can lament in false humility. We can be like a spiritual Eeyore. You know, oh, bother. Woe is me. If I only had a gift like then, then I could be really useful. If I was only out front leading like they were, then I could be really useful and spiritual. 
If I was only teaching, if I only had the gift of mercy like them, if I was only an evangelist like them, then I could do something meaningful for the kingdom. But I don't. So I'll just sit here. You ever notice those ditches in your life? Boasting in gifts on one hand or lamenting the gifts that you had on the other? It's like getting a bad gift at Christmas time. You have to kind of grin and bear it. Thank you so much. But you're really not excited about the gift. We need to remember the truth of God's Word. We need to, to the extent that we see this tendency, either of these tendencies in ourselves, we need to repent. To the prideful, we need to repent of wrongfully boasting in a gift that is only present in us because of grace. Why, it's called a spiritual gift. In what way can we boast in gifts that we had no hand in receiving? None. And to the spiritual gift lamenters, the Eeyores, we need to repent of neglecting to see that the infinite wisdom of God has seen fit to gift us exactly how He thinks we need to be gifted. God didn't overlook you. He hasn't shortchanged you. He didn't send you into the world half-baked, slightly done. He knitted you together in the womb. He knew you before you were born, and He has gifted you according to His miraculous plan of redemption so that you might honor Him with whatever gifts He has given to you. No need to envy the gifts of others. No need to be discontent with the lot you've been given. God knew what you needed And he knew what your church needed. And so we can trust in his allotment and glorify God with our gifts. And for both parties, the prideful and the lamenters, we need to remember the point of the gifts, which is to see more of Jesus. The Jesus who died on the cross for the arrogant and the boastful, who redeemed from the bondage of discontentment and envy, who even saw fit to give spiritual gifts to those who are so prone to misuse and neglect them. That's the Jesus we proclaim and seek to honor with our gifts, the Jesus who used every single one of his perfect gifts to make sure that you'd be forgiven and be gifted with all things necessary for your life and godliness. The Spirit of God is the giver of these good gifts. Next, We've seen the deity of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit as the source of all these gifts. Now let's notice number three, which tells us why. Why are we gifted? To serve the Lord. To serve the Lord. Look at verse four again. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of service but the same Lord whom we serve. We might say there are many ways to serve the kingdom, but there's only one king whom we are to serve. And in the service of our cosmic king, every act of kingdom service is valuable. Every spirit-led role is valuable. There are no insignificant acts of service when done in service to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That teaches us several things. It means that in the body of Christ, there's no need for uniformity. We don't all have to look the same in order to have significance for our service. We don't have to imitate imitate the best servants around here. We don't have to mimic our favorite teachers. We don't have to model ourselves after the best of hosts or the 
or copy the best encouragers. We can be ourselves. We can express our personality as we walk in the Spirit of God. The unity of the body of Christ in no way requires uniformity. In fact, it needs diversity to be healthy, as we'll see in the rest of this chapter. We don't have to try and express gifts in the same way. Two people might have the same gift, the gift of teaching, for example. One of them preaches to thousands. The other one teaches a homeschool audience of one. And in the service of God, both can carry eternal significance. And neither is less significant than the other. Because it is the Lord whom we seek to please with our gifts, not men. Additionally, this variety in expression should evoke from within us gratitude to God for the various giftings we see in the body. Different gifts expressed in different ways show us more of Jesus. When I see people around me serving the body with gifts that I don't have, then I can thank God because they've shown me a little bit more of what Jesus is like. When I see people exercising the gift of encouragement, which I may or may not excel in, it remind wasn't that funny. <laughs> it reminds me of Jesus in a way that I might not have otherwise noticed. When I see people showing mercy in ways that I had never thought of, it makes me remember my Savior who demonstrated unexpected mercy to someone like me who might lack in the area of compassion. Without diversity of spiritual gifts in the body, variously expressing love to our Lord, we'd be bereft of some sweet taste of Jesus that we might otherwise not have had. And that leads us to another related danger, which is this. It's thinking that true spirituality looks like a specific expression of a certain kind of gift. That a really mature Christian would demonstrate this gift or that gift. That the truly gifted, those are the ones that are the teachers and the preachers. But the immature, the, the simple, those are the ones that just hold babies down in the nursery. Those are the ones that change diapers and, and clean the bathrooms. That the really godly ones are the ones out there preaching on the street corners or clothing the needy, or orchestrating and running all the schedules and the programs, whatever the gift is. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach to spirituality. The truth is that a healthy body needs the full diversity of giftings expressed all around them, all of them. And a mature believer can rejoice in the diversity of spiritual gifts he sees around them and not fall into the trap of making certain gifts of greater significance than the others. Because he knows that every gift is significant when it's employed in service to the king. Next observation. We've seen the deity of the Holy Spirit, the source of the gifts, and why we get them, which is to serve the Lord. Now let's ask how. How do we get and use these spiritual gifts? And the answer is divine empowerment. We get spiritual gifts through divine empowerment. Verse 4 again. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. The same God empowers them all. There are varieties of activities, but God is the source behind each and every one of them. 
Each spirit-led act of service is a divinely empowered activity. He is the source of the strength. He's the one who gives the growth. He's the motivation and the perseverance. He's the fountain of any power or gifting we might have. So whether the activity seems natural to us, almost effortless even, or whether we have to grit our teeth and bear our way through it, each exercise of spiritual gifts is an expression of divine enablement that would have otherwise been impossible. Whether it's a sermon preached, a word of encouragement given, a spreadsheet prepared, a prayer prayed, whatever the act of spiritual devotion, its beginning was in the divine plan and power of God Himself. But we don't always think that way, do we? And therein lies the danger for us. How often do we run thoughtlessly and press our way through the service, acts of service to God? How many of us have run through our quiet time, letting our text, our eyes scan the text of God's Word while its power remains far from our cold hearts? How many of us have served in one way or the other at church, purely motivated out of duty that seems like a chore to us, rather than embracing it as an act of service and devotion to God? There's a hundred ways that we can seek to serve without any dependence upon God and His Spirit. We forget that we need divine enablement, divine empowering to do anything of lasting significance. In our, forget, in our pride, we forget that though we might be planting and we might be watering, God is the one that has to give the growth. We're like the builders in Psalm 127 who try to build the house in vain because they do it without the strength of the Lord. There may be hundreds of possible activities, a hundred noble opportunities that we could pursue, but if we're pursuing any of them without the power of God and the strength of His might, then we're just striving after the wind. Let us remember that without Christ and His Spirit, we are pursuing an impossible task. We're fruitlessly spinning our wheels and we'll make no headway. So let us be mindful of our impotence in the face of such tasks. And in a godly position of humility and on our knees, cry out to God to grant us the strength and the empowerment we need to do anything of lasting value. Moving on, let's look at verse 7 and ask the question, gifts for whom? Who gets these gifts? And the answer is everyone. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. To each to everyone. Every Christian has been gifted by the Holy Spirit, which is to say there are no ungifted Christians. And you might be saying, Pastor, I don't know. I've seen some pretty ungifted Christians in my day. Well, maybe, maybe that is so. But if they are truly a Christian and they are underperforming, it's not because they have no gifts. And it may be that they're trying to exercise gifts that they don't have. We put the cog in the wrong place. We've probably all sat under someone trying to teach who does not have the gift of teaching. They start off unsure of where they're going, not sure how they're going to get there, and unsure to know when they have arrived. But the problem for them is not that they were giftless entirely. It's more likely that they are just trying to serve in a way that the Spirit hasn't gifted them. 
And so we all ought to seek to humbly know ourselves and consider how the Spirit has gifted us. We need to discern our gifts. We need to put them to use. And it's not rocket science to figure out the ways that the Spirit has gifted us. Ask somebody that knows you. Ask your wife or your friends or your parents. They can usually discern pretty quickly what you're good at and what seems to come naturally for you. It's also worth noting that gifting usually aligns with inclination, that is, desire. And it usually aligns with fruitfulness. Not always, but usually. What do you like to do? You're probably gifted in that way. What kind of service that you employ seems to have the blessing of the Lord upon it? It's not a foolproof paradigm. God's the one that gives the growth. And yet they're useful diagnostic questions. If you are devastatingly afraid to speak in front of groups of people, you might not be gifted to teach. And that's fine. Maybe you find that people seem to gravitate to you and they feel at ease. They feel comfortable talking to you. Maybe you have the gift of hospitality. Maybe you love talking one-on-one with people. You find it very easy to communicate with strangers. Maybe you're gifted in evangelism. Praise God. Don't fall into the danger of thinking that in order to discern your spiritual gifts, you need to take a Facebook quiz Or you need to sit around and have some sort of pseudo-mystical experience as if the clouds from heaven will part and God's glory will descend upon you, revealing to you the gifts that you've been given. Your gifts are usually apparent to the people around you and apparent in the ways that you like to serve. And so figure them out and use them, employ them, because every Christian is gifted and therefore every Christian has a valuable part to play in the life of a healthy body. Now, that's who gets the gift. Now, let's look at the end of verse 7 and see by whom these gifts come. By whom these gifts come. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So, they come by the Spirit. This is related to the point above, but I want to emphasize the corporate element of the Spirit's manifestation here. That is to say... Within the body of Christ, that is the church, the Spirit manifests Himself and His ministry in part through the gifts that He gives to the church of God. God uses the fullness of divine wisdom in allocating the gifts among the body. And God is no haphazard giver. He knows what He's doing. We don't need to second-guess His work. We might pray that God would grant us more servants or more encouragers or more gifted in hospitality or more gifted administrators, but we need not disdain the gifts that He's already given to us. And therein lies a correlating danger. We can sometimes fall into the trap of lamenting a perceived lack of a certain gift, a paucity of gifts that we think are important and implicitly malign God's allocation of spiritual gifts. If we only had more street evangelists, if we only had more hospitality, if we only had more encouragers, then the church could really get some stuff done. Such lament is often veiled discontentment, sometimes rooted in envy 
or in pride. Because we're saying that I know better than God in allocating the gifts in the church. If God would just listen to me and do it according to my plan, then the church could really be effective. Our job is not to allocate the gifts. That's the Spirit's job. Our job is to rejoice in the gifts given to others in the body and rejoice at their being exercised for the good of the body. Our job is also to identify and to develop and implement our own gifts for the good of the body. Which leads to our final point, which we might frame this way. What are the gifts for? What are the gifts for? The answer is, again, from verse 7. They're for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Spiritual gifts are given to each of us that we might each employ our gifts in the service of the King for the good of the body. Or to say it another way, The gifts are not about you, individually. The gifts aren't given so that you might merely have your own private, personal edification. Some people talk this way. There was even a bit of a fad in our convention a few years ago that highlighted this. Some charismatic theology came in. It was popular among some of the churches. People began to talk about having their own private spiritual prayer language. They would go into the prayer closet and they would pray in tongues. They would use passages like this in chapter 14 as precedent. Now I'll address speaking in tongues in due time. But one thing is certainly clear from this verse. That the spiritual gifts were given to you so that you can use them publicly for the common good of those around you. Not simply so that you can have them in private and never share them with others. That is an exercise in missing the point which is our final danger for us to notice tonight. And the danger is thinking that our spiritual gifts are primarily about me. My gifts are for my good. That's the opposite of what Paul is saying here. But people do it. They think, I need to teach because I have the gift of teaching, and if I don't teach, I won't be fulfilled. There's a lot of eyes in that statement. Or I have the gift of hospitality, so the church needs to make this big program so that I can express my gifts. Or I have to serve in this way or that way so that I can feel effective and feel accomplished and feel valuable in my contribution. So we easily turn a gift, which was given for the good of the body, into a selfish activity for self-promotion, rather than a divinely empowered opportunity for self-sacrifice for the good of the body. And when we persist in turning gifts into selfish promotion rather than selfless service, we can unintentionally undermine the gospel that we proclaim to believe. What we're saying with our actions is that the body exists to serve the individual member, which is the opposite of what Paul's saying here. We're saying that the gifted one deserves to be elevated which was the problem in Corinth. They were acting like the first should be first, which is to invert the logic of Christ's kingdom where the first are to be last and the last to be first. But praise God that Christ operated consistently with the logic of His own kingdom. He was first and deservedly so, but became the last. He was the perfectly gifted one and yet He became a servant to the body, a slave even 
Paul says in Philippians 2. So that because of his gifted service, his body might be edified. See, we receive good because he bore our evil. He humbled himself so that we might be washed of our pride. He became lowly so that we might be elevated and exalted. That's the good news of the gospel. It's, it's available for any, for all of you to receive tonight. Any who would come, come and trust in this message of hope. It's not merely a message for the gifted. It's a message for the whole world to believe. And by, by believing, you too can become a recipient of the Holy Spirit of God. Gifted with divine enablement to serve in His kingdom. And so won't you trust in this Jesus? He was the perfectly gifted one who because of love for His body so generously shares His gifts to each so that everyone who comes to Him would have one. So we get to finish tonight by reflecting upon the greatest gift that He gave to His church which is of Himself. Reflecting upon the reminder of Christ's humble service, we get to partake of the Lord's Supper. Christ became the cursed one, bearing in His body the full weight of divine wrath so that we might taste the goodness of forgiveness. The perfectly gifted one was treated as contemptible so that we, the contemptible ones, might be saved and gifted eternal life. This table is for all believers here, those who are trusting in Christ and living like the disciples were in Acts 2, devoted to God's Word, to fellowship among the body, to prayer, and to the breaking of bread. If that is you, we invite you to join us. But if you haven't yet come to Christ, or if you're out of fellowship with Christ's body, which is the church, then let the plates pass and first be made right with God and His body. Let's pray. Our Holy Father in heaven, we ask that you would set aside the elements of this table. Use them to build up your body. Help us to see more of Christ pictured in them, his body broken and his blood shed, that we might be washed. We ask this in Christ's name.